Good morning, my brothers and sisters. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I know some of you. My name is Mark Barr. Uh, I come from Oak Harbor, uh, from Redeeming Grace Church. Uh, We have a couple families uh, from RGC with us here today. It's a pleasure to be able to be here and talk with you about uh, the most worthy subject, the doctrine of God. In particular, his omnipresence and his sovereignty. Before we begin, though, let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, as we come to you before your truth that is in your word, we ask, O oh Lord, This great thing that is so unfathomable that you would reveal yourself to us. That you would make yourself known to us. You who created the heavens and the earth. You who stand in your own category. That you would make yourself known to us, to our feeble, finite minds. And pray, O Lord, that we would approach this subject, each of us, this preacher included, appropriately. Approaching it with great care, with great honor, with great joy. We pray that you would open up our ears and our eyes. We pray, O Lord, that the truth of your word would come forth. And that our faith would be strengthened and increased. And we pray, O Father, that you would guide this preacher. We pray, O Lord, that you would chain him to the truth that is your word. Such that he might freely declare that truth. And do so clearly, accurately, and understandably. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Anytime I'm asked to teach on the doctrine of God, I always find myself a little bit, sometimes more than a little bit, intimidated. Always come to my mind when I hear about the idea of the doctrine of God is the words of one of my seminary professors, Dr. Jeff Bingham. He said, The most important thought you will ever think is what you think when you think about God, because it will determine every other dimension of your existence. Then he went on to say that as we approach this subject matter, which was the doctrine of God and systematic theology, this is not something that we approach in jeans and a T-shirt, metaphorically speaking, but this is a tuxedo event. For these are the highest things. And so as we approach this, we approach this knowing full well that these are high things that God has revealed to us, yet he's revealed them to us in ways that we in our finiteness can grasp. He's revealed them according to ways we can grasp. And so as we approach that, let's remember to preserve mystery as has been said several times. The topic in which I'm talking about today, and as Michael said earlier, topical sermons are, uh, as he said of himself, are not my forte. And so I'm going to be doing a little bit of exposition as part of this as well. But my topic today is that of omnipresence and sovereignty. And of course, when those were put before me, and I thought, oh, good, small topics. (laughs) No, not really. When we think of omnipresence and we think of sovereignty, a number of different uh, pictures come to our mind. When I was a young Christian, I saw these words for the first time, the omnis, the omnipotence, the omniscience, and the omnipresence. And the first thing uh, that came to my mind was a lemon of a car that my parents had in the 70s. word omni. The word omni has this idea of all-encompassing, 
covering all things. And of course, sovereignty, and we're going to be talking about that in just a moment, has to do with his rule, his right to rule, and to rule in accordance with his own discretion according to his own character. You might say it's his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his immutability, his eternality in action in history. Some of you may have the same problem that I do in that you expect yourself, usually unbeknownst to yourself, to be in more than one place at, at a time. People say to me, hey, can we meet next Tuesday at 3 p.m.? And of course, without bothering to look at my notes, I'll say, yeah, sure, we'll meet next Tuesday at 3 p.m. And then Tuesday morning, I get a call saying from another person, we're meeting today at 3, right? Being at more than one place at a time. You and I are limited in that we cannot be in more than one place at a time. When we look at this idea of omnipresence, we're looking at God as not being confined to space. That is a place. Not being confined to time and space. God's omnipresence would tell us that God is spaceless. He does not occupy a place in the sense that you and I occupy places. Just as he exists, not subject to time, as Baruch mentioned last night, he is not subject to location. He is everywhere all the time. He is not located in any particular space and time, nor can we describe him as having dimensions. As long as there have been spaces and times, God has been in all those spaces and times. And beyond that, before there were spaces and times, God was there. Before there was a before, God was there. And after there is an after, God is there. This is often very difficult for us to grasp. For you and I as creatures, it's impossible for us to know the way that God knows himself. We know him the way he's revealed himself to us, but we only know him according to his revelation. We don't know, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Speaking specifically of the what we would call his secret will versus his revealed will. But that tells us there are things that God knows of himself and his own purposes that we don't know. That creature-creator distinction is there. And so it's difficult for us to grasp. There's a number of scriptures that testify to his omnipotence. One that comes to mind is found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verse 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. He says of his own nature, he fills heaven and earth. That wherever heaven and earth exists, Wherever it is, he is there. And not only is he there, he fills it. Not in the sense of pantheism in which God is everything or panentheism which would, in which God is in everything in the sense of being part of all the beings. But rather, he is there. That's the nature of his essence. As Baruch said, God is an extension of that is God is there. Wherever one might walk, God is there. As the Jeremiah said, there is no place where anyone can hide from God. 
because he is there. Quoted earlier in the previous message was from Psalm 139. Let us hear it again. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Hear David's expression of his understanding of God. Is there anywhere that he can go to get away from his spirit? Is there anywhere that he can go to flee from his presence? Now, these are rhetorical questions. <laughs> Wherever he goes, whether it would be ascending to heaven or making a bed in Sheol in the grave, God is there. Or in the time or in the morning or in the seas, he is there. He is confident that God will lead him and his right hand shall hold him because why? God is there. In his nature, he is not subject to the limitations of my fellow sci-fi fans, the time-space continuum. (laughs) In 1 Kings chapter 8, Verse 27, this is at the dedication, Solomon giving his dedication of the temple, which is the covenantal dwelling place of God for the nation of Israel, which the Ark of the Covenant shall be placed in the central location in the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence dwells among his people in that Ark. And in the midst of that, Solomon says, somewhat ironically, in verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. That while I have built this house for him to dwell in, it, it, is, it cannot contain God, for God cannot be contained. Notice the highest The heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. We may think we have a problem when we're trying to load up for a trip and we are trying to play Tetris and get everything fit into the back of our, uh, into the hatchback or into the trunk of our vehicle. But when we look at the universe, at the size of our galaxy, at the vastness of the universe. When we look up at night, you know, I used to live in Dallas before coming here, inner city Dallas, a lot of lights. I'd look up at night and all I would see was black sky because there's too many lights. Occasionally might be able to see a star, but in Oak Harbor and even more so probably out here, I can look up and I can see a whole lot of stars. I can see the vastness of the universe. And I think that universe that I'm looking at cannot contain God because he is outside of the regulation, so to speak, of space and time. He created time. He created space. Stephen Charnick says of his um, of omnipresence, God, because he is infinite, fills all, yet so as not to be contained in them. He is from the height of the heavens to the bottom of the deeps, in every point of the world and in the whole circle of it, yet not limited by it, but beyond it. Even in the place of God's wrath, what we would call hell. God is present 
Some people will say that uh, hell is just the absence of God. He's actually present. His wrath is present. God is always all that he is. That's part of the simplicity that was mentioned earlier. Yet we don't always see all that he is. And in the presence of God, in the presence of God's wrath, that is all that is seen of God. This is wrath. We just sung a hymn, which and I actually had planned this, but we just sang, we, we have just sung a hymn in which we can hear the words of omnipresence in that hymn. Listen to this, unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. Do you hear, not hear the everywhereness of God's justice there? Thy justice like mountains high soaring above. So that's a definition and some scriptures on omnipresence. What I want to deal with in a little bit after we talk a bit about sovereignty, though, is we're going to look at it in terms of his presence from the standpoint of his covenant with us in union with Christ. Of his, we might say, omnipresence in the context of his covenantal presence. Hopefully that wasn't too much of a mouthful. When we think of sovereignty, a number of different pictures might come to our mind. Very recently, for those who are in the United Kingdom and those who are also Anglophiles over here, like my beloved wife, over the last uh, couple of weeks, there's been a lot of news of the one who is uh, the sovereign in England, Queen Elizabeth. She is the ruler. She has the right to rule by virtue of her status. When we think of sovereignty, that's what we're thinking of is God's right to rule his rulership and his activity of ruling strictly according to his own purposes, his own will, his own character and all that he is. First Timothy chapter six, verses 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So here he says, or speaks of God uh, in Christ as the only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. That if there's a king, there's a king who outranks that king. And that's our God. If there's someone who is called Lord, there's a Lord who outranks that Lord. And that Lord is our God who is the God who is there. To steal the title from Francis Schaeffer. <laughs> he also has dominion that's tied to his sovereignty the only king of kings. As was mentioned, if there's one who rules, it's a borrowed rule. It's a borrowed rule. We even see that in Romans 13, which people who are in authorities are there because God has placed them in authority. That's also an act of providence. You see, as... When we deal with the doctrines of God, it's very difficult to deal with one in isolation with another because of the fact that he is all that he is and he's always acting in accordance with all that he is. We also hear this in Psalm 29, verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. 
May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Here we see the uh, declaration of God's sovereignty. He, he sits enthroned over the flood and as king forever. It says he sits on a throne, meaning he, ha- he has rule. And what he says goes. And he has the authority to rule, but also closely tied to that. May the Lord give strength to his people and bless his people with peace. That as sovereign in his sovereignty for his people in whom he, ex- in whom he has given, placed himself in covenant with. He says, from his sovereignty, he gives strength, and from his sovereignty, he blesses his people with peace. The doctrine of sovereignty is one that sometimes gives people fits of fright. We understand it aright in relationship to God in Christ. It is one that should give us great encouragement and comfort in the gospel. What we see in sovereignty is God is the absolute ruler who alone is able to and qualified to exert and carry out his will with absolute authority. To borrow from omnipotence, he can and he can and does do what he pleases. And he does so in history as the ruler who sits on his throne. And he does so in the life of his people. We might say that God's sovereignty is an expression of who he is in his activity in history, in creation. Of course, all is an expression of who he is, of what he does. But we can see expressed his unchangeability, his simplicity, We see it in his right. It's his right to rule in accordance with who he is. God's sovereignty declares to us in the words of Matthew Barrett, again, from his wonderful book, None Greater. We worship a God who is in complete control of who he is and what he does. There is no king and no ruler, no sovereign who exists in creation of whom that can be said, who is in complete control of who he is and what he does. Only God is sovereign. Again, his sovereignty is an expression of all that he is. It declares to us his immutability. That means he doesn't change. It declares to us that He cannot be acted upon so as to bring about a change of his person, a change of his will, or a change of his existential state. That means his mood, so to speak. God does as he pleases, which is always in accordance with his character. We can hear the beauty of God's sovereignty. The words of the hymn. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. If you don't know, that's from this is my father's world. We should always find comfort and we do find comfort in that God is sovereign and always does and acts in accordance with his character. God is always what he is. As mentioned earlier in Michael's sermon, he's not just a, he's not, you take a little bit of holiness, a little bit of righteousness, a little bit of a, a sprinkle of omnipresence and mix it all together and put all these parts together and you have God. He is all of those things. And thus, it is true of himself. He always acts in accordance with who he is. He is all, he is all his attributes and is always all that he is. And we can hear that in one of my favorite verses of Scripture, sections of Scripture, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. 
It's called Shema because those are the opening words. Shema, listen. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. No, that's not tongues. That's the Hebrew text. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Notice he says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. First of all, he's one in the sense that he's the only God. He's one in the sense that he simply is. He's not multiple gods. He's one. And notice the call to love him with the totality of one's heart and soul and might. Strengthening the fact that he's one. No room for other loves. Even love for neighbor flows from love for God. And so his sovereign decrees are always in accordance with his character. They are righteous. They are just. They are merciful. They're loving. He's always all of that. And we must simply accept that. We look at God's decrees based upon what happens to us in his providences. And we will often go like Job and others and say, but why? And sometimes we're challenged to say, I think during this time of difficulty, you need to discern what God's trying to teach you. But you and I actually don't have access to that information. All we can do is do educated speculation. Calvin says of that, but if you proceed further to ask why he so willed, you are seeking something greater and higher than God's will, which cannot be found. Let man's rashness then restrain itself and not seek what does not exist, lest perhaps it fail to find what does exist. So in his sovereignty, we accept his decree. When we think of sovereignty, of course, we think of it in terms of uh, Ephesians 1, God's predestinating activity. Or Ephesians 2 and the famous but God statement. God decreed that there would be that but God he would send his son and by grace you have been saved. All God's sovereign activity in history and in the lives of his people. Being in a crowd of folks who probably all agree with me on those things, I would call that low hanging fruit. <laughs> In reverse order, from what we just dealt with, we have omnipresence and sovereignty. Now we're going to go backwards, sovereignty, omnipresence. We might say we're dealing with this chiastically, for those of you who know the word. But we'll look at them from a passage of scripture that has become for me a great source of encouragement to me in the gospel. It is not one that I thought would be that. In our own church, we've been working through the book of Hebrews. We are, it's a, and the, this passage in Hebrews, which we just finished in, in which we just finished, we, were, uh, we spent five or six messages in this section. I lost count. But Hebrews has been a great, great blessed study for me. Never taught it, and it's been a great, and I've read it many times, but never taught it. It's been a great study for me personally as a Christian. And this passage we'll be looking at, it's one that, well, I, was, I always knew what I thought about, was one I hadn't really put my thoughts to words. And I found great trepidation, trepidation in preaching it. But that passage has become for me a great source of confidence in God's sovereign promises, and in his omnipresence, among many other things. We're going to turn our attention now to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm 
believe I have time to read the entirety of it. I gave myself a little note here, only read in full if you have time. (laughs) Starting in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Pardon me. I'm in my late 40s now. (laughs) About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to be doing a verse-by-verse exposition of that particular section. I mentioned, I think that was five or six sermons at our church, and I wish, I I want to eat lunch too. So, (laughs) while we don't have time to go through the whole passage, This section of scripture is pregnant with assurances of God's sovereign activity and his faithful presence among his people. When we approach Hebrews chapter six, we oftentimes focus on that section starting in verse four, going through verse nine, that uh, when I was a young Christian, I read that and I found myself having committed some sort of sin. And I said, I'm done. God's done with me because I didn't really understand what was going on in that passage. And of course, I've had the opportunity to counsel many who found themselves in the same place that I did. Just a brief rundown of what's going on. We have a group of people to whom the author is writing, and I'm becoming convinced more and more as I work through Hebrews that it is Paul. Um, Still not going to name an author, but I'm just leaning more in that direction. But we have some unsettled foundations that are going on. They keep going back to these foundational things and they're having to rebuild these foundational things because they're not settled. 
He's urging them for their foundations to be settled, as well as understanding from a foundational standpoint, any future building needs to be built upon and consistent with that foundation. Not like the Dallas City Hall, which has a small foundation and then juts out like that. (laughs) And then he urges them to grow up such that that foundation basically permeates the whole of their existence and so informs their existence in their life that it changes their perspective. He doesn't urge them to leave them behind so as to forget it, but for those foundations to permeate all of their existence. And then he gives a doctrinal basis for the exhortation, the one where it says it's impossible to renew somebody who has fallen away. And here's my own thought of it. It's impossible to renew someone to something that they don't already have. They don't need to be revived, so to speak. They need to be vibed. Because <laughs> there's good soil and bad soil. No amount of going back to those foundations, no amount of baptisms and instructions and washings and those things is going to bring about such renewal because it can't be done. It requires God's sovereign activity to bring them to life. But then he gives a statement and and to do so, to think to do so would be to be crucifying Christ again. There's no more sacrifices, only Christ. But then he gives a statement of confidence starting in verse nine that the author is indeed with is indeed confidence confident about the readers that they are indeed those who rest upon God in Christ by faith who patiently wait for him and he gives a basis for that confidence but the first note of God's sovereign activity and the Assurance of God's sovereignty in this passage is actually found in verse 3. I tried to slightly uh, emphasize some of these words without so giving it away. But he says, and this we will do if God permits. Based on what we briefly saw, the one whom he doesn't, the one whom he doesn't permit is one who he doesn't permit because he has not been united to Christ by faith. And we often hear that and we say, immediately jump and say, is God going to permit me? And here's the answer to the question. If you are in Christ, the answer to that question is an astounding yes. If you are one who is in Christ Jesus, who has truly been united to him, the answer is yes, God does permit. He shall in, he does in his sovereignty, permit and decree that you shall continue to hold on to Christ Jesus and that those foundations shall bear fruit. He does permit If God wills is another way of reading that. He said, let us be brought to maturity. Notice that's also passive. Let's say, bring yourselves to maturity. He says, let us be brought to maturity. Dependent upon God because it is his sovereign activity. His confidence is this. This we will do. And why would one do it? Because God permits according to his sovereign will, according to his sovereign decree. This is not done by our own efforts, but rather by the sovereign enablement and gift of God. This is not to bring the believer into doubt as to whether or not God wishes him or her uh, to persevere. I like to say it this way, that God wishes to preserve him or her so that they will persevere. But it is to state this. Your persevering in resting upon Christ by faith, patiently waiting upon him by faith, is dependent upon the God who has stated that he will not lose any of those who are his. And it is according to God's sovereign decree and his sovereign will. And so what we can hear from that is we have every reason 
keep trusting him. To keep looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. It's an exhortation to trust in the God whose love cannot be fatigued. Or one of my favorite words, his indefatigable love. (laughs) And will work according to his will and will preserve those who are his, thus preserving them. In his sovereignty, he works according to his will. And nothing can change that which he has decreed. No one can act upon, nothing can act upon God in such a way so as to change his decree. Our perspective on God changes. What we see of God's will and his purposes and his nature changes. But as we learned last night, the sun is all always shines as it always has been. We can also see that later in the passage. We also see that sovereignty at work is also a doctrinal basis for the confidence the author expresses because of his confidence in God's promise. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Listen to those first few words there. So when God desired. When God desired. That is, when God acted according to his purpose, according to his own rule and his own purposes, he made a sovereign decision. And what he desired to do is he desired to give something to show those who are heirs of his promise, to show them something that they might be more convinced of his faithfulness. God in his sovereignty showed himself faithful. And of course, what he showed them is that he guaranteed guaranteed his promise with an oath that he took upon himself because there's no one greater upon whom he can swear. The two unchangeable things uh, being the fact that uh, he took, number one, that he made an oath, and number two, the unchangeable nature of his purposes. Bolstered by the fact that he cannot lie. Why can he not lie? Because it's contrary to his character. But notice the language. God wanted to show something to the heirs of promise. John Owen says of this, everything that follows stems from this. It is all founded in the will of God. God wanted. The sovereign will of God is the sole spring of all grace, mercy, and consolation that believers partake of in this world. This is what is proposed here. This is what God wanted. Let those who need grace, and who does not, expect it from God. Through their own endeavors, we seek God. Through our own endeavors, we seek God's grace. But it is God's will alone that brings this about. His sovereign activity. But we also see God's faithful present, the God who is present everywhere in this passage. Listen to this. We verse eight. Verse 19, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Christian life that we live is one that is lived in hope. Hope being the expectation of things that we do not see. We hear the word hope and frequently we rob it of all of its meaning because we use it into terms where we turn it into some sort of a, a dubious wish for something to come to pass that we have absolute certainty won't come to pass. <laughs> there were many days in 
uh, my college and seminary years where I expressed that and I said, I hope that there is money at the end of the month and not month at the end of the money. John, as John Owen uh, stated in his commentary, which I didn't quote, but he said, this hope is not dubious or fleeting. It's not so because God is its, it's, and it's not dubious or fleeting because God is its guarantor who made an oath upon himself. And there is an anchor that is given, this is given to us an anchor, an anchor for our souls that is firm and steadfast, that is entered into a certain place. And this is an anchor that is not a rusty anchor that looks like it's about ready to crumble the moment it hits a rock. But this is a steadfast anchor, nor is it anchor that's still sitting on the ship. But it's anchored and it's been anchored somewhere. And listen to where it has been anchored. It has been anchored inside of the curtain. This anchor that is firm and steadfast is behind this thing he calls a curtain into the inner place. What is this curtain? Well, this is temple imagery. And Hebrews goes through and uses this imagery number of times of the earthly temple, but the earthly temple is not the end. The earthly temple is a type that points to the heavenly temple. And that is where this anchor is set. Behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the high priest went in once a year, having also made sacrifice for his own sins, to make sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And in there is the very presence of God, covenantally speaking, in the temple. And so when we have this language of behind the curtain, it's the language of this is where God is. Our hope for our souls is anchored in God himself, in where he is. Being set behind this curtain, which was torn in two, which the type, I should say, was torn in two. This anchor for our souls is set in the Holy of Holies, the one in which Christ entered on our behalf and is anchored in God himself. So our hope is anchored in the very presence of God. When we think of that in terms of omnipresence, this is not related to just some specific place. Right now, in this place where we are, if we are in Christ, the hope, this anchor for our souls, this hope that we have is rooted in the very presence of God right here, right now, because God is omnipresent. When we leave from here, or if we find ourselves in a place which we find ourselves with great difficulty, sometimes the Lord sees fit to send us difficult providences. Some of us feel like we get our more, our, uh, our more than our fair share. I said feel like we get our more than our fair <laughs> share. Not that we actually do. But wherever we are, whatever time we face, we have a hope that is sure and certain that is anchored in the very presence of God. And in God's omnipresence, that is everywhere. That's today, that's tomorrow, that's the next day, that's the next day. And I could keep going. But it's when things seem to be, at least according to our perspective, going the way we would like them to go, or when they are going the way that we sometimes have nightmares over. God's is pre God is present, and our hope is rooted in God's presence, who is everywhere all the time, who cannot be contained. And so thus his presence grips the ho our hope, grips this presence, the Holy of Holies, 
This is not simply the this is not the physical sanctuary, but rather this is in the heavenlies. This is in God, where he is, which is everywhere. And so thus we can say that we are while we are still in, as John Chrysostom says of this, that while we are still in the world and not yet departed from this life, we are already among the promises for through hope we are already in heaven with God because he is everywhere all the time. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, there's great comfort and there's great encouragement in his omnipresence and in his sovereignty. There's also great dread for the one who does not know God. For us who are in Christ, those are two glorious words, two of my favorite words in the scriptures. And I would argue if I had time to write a dissertation that those are Paul's two favorite words <laughs> in Christ. These are great comforting truths because God in his sovereignty decrees the end from the beginning and he decrees that you are mine and because you are mine, I will keep you to those who are in Christ Jesus. And in his presence, his faithful presence, which we cannot escape, we cannot do anything to get away from it. There is everlasting and eternal hope because our hope is rooted in him who is everywhere all the time. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your revelation of your word. We pray, Father, that that which is true, which we just heard, will sink into our hearts and that if there are any bones, we would spit them out. We pray, Father, that you would lead us more to yourself to strengthen us in truth. We pray, our Father, that you would help us to understand more and more your sovereignty in your omnipresence as much as these finite minds can so that we might walk in the confident expectation of things that we do not yet see. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.